0: Okay, we here at NPR have an app we really like. We want you to try it too. It is called NPR One. You can use it to listen to NPR news, shows, and podcasts. And as you do, it listens to you and it figures out what you like the best and it gives you more of that. We think you will like it. Find NPR One on your App Store now. Hey y'all, it's the NPR Politics Podcast. We are here with our weekly roundup of political news one day earlier than usual because there is already so much to talk about this week. After a weekend of violence on the campaign trail, we had multiple primaries on Tuesday. Then the president made a Supreme Court nomination. There are episodes on all of those topics behind this one in your feed if you want to get caught up. On this episode, we'll talk a bit more about the presidential race and the Supreme Court. We'll answer some listener mail and we'll hear a clip from a new NPR interview with President Obama. And of course, as always, we'll wrap the show with Can't Let It Go, where we all share one thing we just can't stop thinking about this week. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Scott Detrow. I cover tech and the campaign.
1: I'm Sarah McCammon, campaign reporter.
0: And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. And Sarah, welcome back to the podcast. First time in a while, we have missed you.
1: Thanks. I've been on the road.
0: I know it. Good to be in studio. So the big political news here at the end of the week is the fight over President Obama's nomination of Judge Merrick Garland to the Supreme Court. Who can give us the cliff notes on this?
2: So uh, Merrick Garland has been on the United States Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit for nearly 20 years. That's the second most important court in the country. He's very well respected. He has a centrist reputation, and he's been on the short list for the Supreme Court uh, two times already in Barack Obama's presidency. And that being said, Senate Republicans have said that there's absolutely no way they're even going to consider his nomination for a second. This is something they came out with hours after Antonin Scalia died last month. They said that it's far too late in Barack Obama's presidency and far too deep into the presidential campaign to consider a Supreme Court nomination, especially when it's a key seat like this one, where if Obama replaced Scalia, the entire makeup of the
0: court would flip. So that's the backdrop. Uh, Today our colleague NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg who's been on this podcast before, uh, she interviewed the president about this at the White House and we have a clip.
3: You know one of the the most puzzling arguments that I've heard from Mitch McConnell and some other Republicans is this notion that the American people should decide. We we should let the American people decide uh, as part of this election who gets to fill this seat. Well, in fact, the American people did decide back in 2012 when they elected me president of the United States with sufficient electoral votes.
0: You can catch more of the president's interview on Morning Edition starting Friday or on NPRpolitics.org. So hearing that clip,
4: what the president is saying, does that change anything? Well, the thing is, that's the argument he's going to try to make because the fact of the matter is, you know, Scott set this up very nicely in saying where this is probably going. Now, Senate Republicans have left a little bit of wiggle room where before the November election, they're saying that they will not, uh, you know, approve this president's pick. But after the November election, let's say Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders were to win the presidency, right? There's this quote unquote lame duck session between November and January before the new president is sworn in and there's a president elect. So if there's a president elect Hillary, Clinton or President-elect Bernie Sanders, this is the kind of pick that Republicans actually are pretty open to considering in a lame duck session. But they want to roll the dice right now, wait it out, and see if a Republican can win. But do
0: they think that a Donald Trump would appoint someone they like?
4: I think they are pretty sure he would appoint somebody much better uh, or more conservative in their view than than this. There have been a couple names that have been floated that are people uh, who are far more conservative than Merrick Garland would be.
2: There's a lot of time between now and November, though, and I think that the Obama administration has done its best to box Senate Republicans in here. Because what Obama said when he uh, made the announcement in the Rose Garden was that I've done my job. Now it's the Senate's turn to do theirs. Obama's right. He was elected for four years. But the American people also elected a Republican Senate. And they, of course, could vote Merrick Garland down. The thing is that Senate Republicans don't want to hold hearings, don't want to hold a vote, and don't even want to meet with Merrick Garland because they feel like they want to keep the focus on whether or not Obama should be appointing someone at this point as opposed to the merits of Merrick Garland. And, of course, uh, Obama went and picked someone who many Republicans are on record saying is a good judge, someone that they wished he would go with. And they voted for him before when he was initially appointed to this court in 1997. Yeah.
1: Uh, but I mean, Garland, you know, he's been trying to meet with Senate leaders, hasn't gotten a lot of luck. Uh, he is on Capitol Hill today meeting with with at least one member of the Senate. But I mean, what happens now?
4: Yeah. Well, it's even funny, though, about that is that some Republicans who some are up for reelection uh, Kelly Ayotte for example in New Hampshire is meeting with him just to tell him she won't vote for him yeah <laughs>
1: well, what's like, that meeting like I just like, want to know like what is it like in that moment like I, hi, hi this I is ask pointless about kids, I think you're a great guy
4: you seem like you're really smart but on principle we're not going to let this vote go forward I don't
0: know it's like going <laughs> well, the, the, a first date and you show up and the person's like sorry no second date Let's enjoy this meal.
1: Right. You know, like it's weird.
4: You know, this this is what you're seeing from a lot of Republicans who are up for reelection, who are a little nervous about what the optics of this could look like. Um, You know, let's be honest, though, if the shoe were on the other foot, what would Democrats do? Well, I don't know if it was a four four court. Democrats would try to find some way to delay this, most likely. They might be a little well, bit they have better- But they've
0: delayed in hearings, though.
4: Well, what... it's hard to say what how they would have gone about it. I mean, you saw Senator Richard Blumenthal from Connecticut say today that Democrats would have unequivocally gone for hearings and gone for a vote. You know, whether that's true, though, I, it's hard to know. I mean, Harry Reid is as tough a player on these things as Mitch McConnell is.
0: So we should expect a long fight with this, huh? Yes.
4: Yeah, just like with everything else. And part of this is personal, because- Republicans say that Harry Reid, when he was Senate Majority Leader, uh, pulled the nuclear option. What this had to do with were the kind of judges that President Obama wanted to put on lower courts. And Republicans had made 60 votes the threshold for every single person by filibustering every single one. So Harry Reid changed the rules and he made it a majority when Democrats were in charge. And that got a flood of Obama nominees through. And people like Mitch McConnell and Orrin Hatch are Smarting over that, to say the least.
1: Not mm. to mention that Republicans are still very angry about the way that uh, the Affordable Care Act was put through, and, and there seems like there's a real eagerness to use the rules to their advantage. To, you know, now as much as they can. Are
4: you kidding me? These guys are still upset about Robert Bork not being <laughs> on the Supreme Court. Uh, so, I mean, it, well, at least
0: the one silver lining is that I like the name Merrick Garland, and I'm going to hear it a lot for the next few months. <laughs>
1: It is a nice it's name. A nice name. That's a nice Someone
0: name. on Twitter today <laughs> tweeted that if you rearrange all the letters in his name, it spells Kendrick Lamar. But that's not true, actually. I thought it was fun. It's fun. All right, let's shift gears and talk about the GOP side of the presidential race for a second. Domenico, what is
4: the latest in terms of delegates? We know that Trump is still the front runner, but by how much? Here's what we know. Donald Trump is the clear frontrunner in this race after the March 15th elections. He has 673 delegates to Ted Cruz's 411. John Kasich follows him up with 143 at this point. Donald Trump needs 52% of the remaining delegates for a majority uh, of all those delegates before he heads into the Cleveland Convention if he wants to have the 1,237 delegates necessary to go in with a majority, that magic number that's necessary. Ted Cruz though here's the problem he needs 3 quarters of all remaining delegates and john Kasich, you know sad trombone for him if we have it in the uh, sound effects department because today with all the allocated delegates that were uh, finally put up by the associated press john Kasich is now mathematically eliminated from getting a majority of the delegates before the convention this summer but still but there in was the race i got <laughs> 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 nice. But here's the Sad thing about Kasich.
0: There's no number for a miracle.
4: Yeah, and and let's be let's be clear. That's not the game he's playing. Yeah, he's he's playing a different game. He's he's looking for an anybody but Trump convention, which I'm skeptical of. But uh, if there is an anybody but Trump convention and John Kasich can get something significant, like a quarter share of the delegates, then he can go in and say he's a viable player, that he's got a ton of the vote, and that if they want somebody else, if people are looking for someone new on that second ballot, uh, maybe they'll come around to John Kasich. That's the game he's playing at this point. But at the moment, the only state he's won is the state he's the governor of. The state he's the governor of, the popular governor of Ohio. And he won Ohio, all 66 delegates there, which you might notice make up uh, just slightly under half of all the delegates he's gotten so far. So, yeah, it's it's definitely tough for him. So let's
0: say that Kasich's dream of being a dark horse on the floor happens. I mean – Lots of folks won't be happy about that, specifically Trump supporters. And uh, this week, Trump said that if he doesn't get the nomination, there could be problems. I think you'd have riots. I think
2: you'd have riots. You know, we have I'm representing a tremendous many, many millions of people. If you disenfranchise those people and you say, well, I'm sorry, but you're 100 votes short, even though the next one is 500 votes short, I think you would have problems like you've never seen before. I think. I think it would. I think bad things would happen. I really do. I believe that. I wouldn't lead it, but I think bad things would happen. Is that a threat? What is that? I well, think that's another clip that we can file away for the next time that Donald Trump says that he never uh, <laughs> never calls on people to
4: do anything violent or never yeah. never encourages violence. Well, he's yeah. just predicting it, I guess. But here's the thing: it made me laugh when Donald Trump at the last debate said that. What is this 1,237 delegate number? That's a very random number. No, to it's me. actually yeah, a it's majority. Actually, <laughs> it's not random at all. It's like very. But everyone specific
0: misuses the word random. To, That's
4: another pet peeve of mine. I I guess, but it's it's not very random. <laughs> yeah, it's not random it's at all. Half. It's exactly half. You know, of the delegates that are needed to go to the convention, but it, it's still you know 52 is not an insignificant number of delegates that he needs. And remember, a lot of people have been talking about how Donald Trump hasn't really won that many places with 50%. Now, the field is winnowed by one. Marco Rubio is out of the race, so he won't be able to split off some of those votes. And as somebody becomes more inevitable, quote unquote, they do wind up picking up more of the vote. But there's still going to be a fight... Uh, and he's going to have to still organize in a lot of places.
1: But it seems like, you know, any other year, if you had a candidate like Trump, which, <laughs> first of all, there's never been a candidate like Trump. But any other year if but you somebody had somebody who has the wins that Donald had, Trump has. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they'd be the inevitable nominee or yeah. even in in any other scenario, if you had someone like Trump and then you had someone a couple hundred delegates behind him. You know, normally you would think that the party would be getting behind that person, but that person is Ted Cruz.
0: And that's you, well, that's another conversation. But one person did endorse Ted Cruz this week, or kind of endorse, not really endorse.
1: Yeah, uh, I guess Lindsey Graham, you know. Is campaigning for him, but not endorsing him exactly. But he's Lindsay raising Graham. money for him
0: too. I'm just saying, Lindsey Graham is like the cat came back, like just over and <laughs> yeah. over and over. He is on our TV screen. I mean,
1: poor Lindsey. You know, he, <laughs> he he's from South Carolina. He drops out before the South Carolina primary because he has no shot. And then and he, he endorses for Jeb. Jeb
0: yeah. Bush. And then now and he quasi endorses Cruz. Curious. Like this all comes I- after he said some pretty shady stuff about Ted Cruz.
3: If you kill Ted Cruz on the floor of the Senate and the trial was in the Senate, nobody could convict you.
0: What's the deal with that, Sarah? No one likes Ted Cruz?
1: I mean, yeah, it's well established that he's very unpopular in Washington. But, you know, Cruz has made that a central argument of his campaign. He's trying to talk to people who are very angry at Washington and, and want something different and want to shake things up and are happy that he's been, you know, stonewalling legislation in the Senate and happy that he's unpopular, but maybe aren't quite ready for somebody like Donald Trump. He's trying to be their alternative.
0: And also, didn't Lindsay say that choosing between Trump and Cruz would be like choosing between...
4: If you nominate make Trump and Cruz, I think you get the same outcome. You know, whether it's death by being shot or poisoning, does it really matter? I don't think the outcome will be substantially different.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: Well, you know, take your pick.
2: We're just in a situation right now where voters are going for Donald Trump more than anybody else. Ted Cruz is getting a lot of votes as well. And then there is an enormous gap in between those two candidates. And anybody else, and the guy the who's and the guy who's mathematically
4: eliminated. Yeah, and the who's mathematically
2: getting... eliminated. And then uh, these are the two people that that many of the top Republicans in the country could not stand. And it's just it's a, it's a would you rather situation that they're trying to sort out. And it seems like for the Lindsey Grahams of the world, there are no good options. So, right.
1: but I think so, the big question is just you know if it is Donald Trump, if Trump is the Republican nominee, as a lot of people think it will be. What about all these people who many of whom are Republicans who say, you know, the never Trump Republicans, where do they go? And that's something I've been asking, you know, voters on the campaign trail. Um, I've been most recently with Ted Cruz. Uh, I want to listen to some tape from a woman named Bridget Ferreira, who I met in Orlando. She's a big fan of Ted Cruz. She told me at one point she thought she could vote for Donald Trump, maybe. But over the last few months, she's decided no way. You know, to me, Trump, Trump gets on Twitter and he acts like, you know, less mature than my nine-year-old child. You know, he he just has zero um, self-control. So... She you know, I asked her, she said she doesn't trust Trump. I asked her, but if he's a nominee, what will you do? And she said she can't imagine voting for a Democrat, especially Hillary Clinton. Uh, Maybe she would just write Ted Cruz in. (laughs) Um, And then another woman I spoke to at another Ted Cruz rally said, you know, she's just not sure what she'd do. She might just sit out the top of the ticket and just vote in other races.
0: What is Ted Cruz's strategy going into the convention, probably being number two in delegate count?
1: I mean, he is still saying publicly that he thinks he can get enough votes, the 1237, enough delegates to win the nomination. And that's his strategy. And his his goal has certainly been to pick them up everywhere he can across the country, even in states, you know, the states that split up their delegates campaigning there, even if he doesn't think he can win, but he can get delegates. But I've also heard him say things like at this same event in Orlando, he was asked this question and he said, on the one hand, he doesn't think the establishment should use a brokered convention to pick a nominee that is their favorite choice. He's, he's called, uh, you know, some of the establishment choices, the golden children. Oh. So he's very, you know, kind sort of sneering at that idea. But he also said this.
2: Look, if Donald come in, Donald and I come in and we're neck and neck and neither of us are at 1237, then it's a battle for the remaining delegates. Then that's actually how a convention operates. Now, I don't think we need to do that. My object is simple. We're going to get to 1,237 delegates. We're going to
1: beat Donald. So basically, he's sort of leaving room for a scenario where he doesn't come in with the most delegates, but he emerges as the nominee.
2: And now you have... uh campaigns and, and political strategists really paying attention to the process of selection of who the actual delegates are, which is usually a ceremonial thing. It's usually kind of a reward for donors or friends or things like that. And now we're seeing more and more reports about really intense strategy going on and making sure you strategically have the people or push for the people you want so that they might vote for Trump on the first ballot. But if it gets to a free for all, you know, you can count on them for whatever your scheme is. There's so, no
4: question that the, that they are for the first time really since 19- 1976, the last time you had a contested convention where no one had enough delegates. Uh, going into the first ballot. This is the first time since then that you have people staffing up for the convention to see how it plays out. Uh, Donald Trump's campaign manager is guaranteed to be on the floor now, Corey Lewandowski, who got himself named a New Hampshire delegate. So he will definitely be on the floor. John Kasich hired the two people who were in charge of the warring camps on delegate battles in 1976. For Reagan and for oh Ford, God. so he's got both of those Jeez. guys. That person is not retired
1: yet. No, so no, they were, guys, they were they were
4: young. are to get back in the the job of delegate tracker or the job of like you know figuring it's obsolete, out. Right. But, well, no, but it was like a it was like a junior. You know, job. Uh, you know, what I mean, uh, like it's a tireless kind of thing. You gotta know the names of every single person you're trying to prove it to your boss. So these guys have been around for 40 years now, and and are some of the more veteran campaign people. People like Charlie Black, who uh, helped run and helped advise John McCain's presidential campaign, for example.
0: So basically, the GOP side of the race still kind of a hot mess, but Donald Trump is the front runner at the moment. Taking a quick break. We'll be right back to talk about the Democratic side of the race.
3: Support for NPR and the following message come from Personal Capital, combining free online financial tools that provide unprecedented transparency with personal attention from dedicated financial advisors. The result is a complete transformation in the way you understand, manage, and grow your net worth. On the web at personalcapital.com/politics.
0: All right, we're back. We know Tuesday was a big night for Hillary Clinton with their primary wins in Florida and Ohio, but Bernie Sanders is marching on. And just today I did a story about why. So Tuesday night, Sanders ended up losing, what's it, he lost what? North Carolina, Florida, Ohio, and Illinois. So this was a rough night for Sanders' team. They sent out this very, very short statement very late Tuesday night. But then on Wednesday they had this conference call, and uh, it's two senior advisors to Bernie Sanders, Jeff Weaver and Tad Devine, and they're basically trying to tell the press there's still a way we can still do this. But they got some pretty tough questions like this one.
2: Yeah, hi, guys. Uh, I wonder if you would define your campaign at this point as a long shot,
0: and if not, what is a long shot in your mind? Long pause. Well, I think, it is, I think it is what it has always been, which is an uphill fight. This, cam- this campaign from day one has always been an uphill fight. So that was BuzzFeed's Evan McMurray-Santos, and th- that was the tone of the questions for the entire hour. And the whole time, Weaver and Devine are basically saying, we can do this, there's still time, the states in the future are favorable to us, and he compared it all to a football game.
2: You know, we're at halftime here, and, and we agree that, that we're behind, but we also think that we're going to win this game.
0: And, and we're going to finish ahead, and we see a path to get there.
1: Okay, I'm just going to let you guys handle the football analogies. Yes. And I have a beef I, with I, the I football.
0: So uh, my whole story today was about how the football like analogy doesn't really hold. Is it because but we'll it's talk about, about it. football? Well, so could you walk me through what their plan to yeah. win is so, and how much of a game of mousetrap is it, or is it something <laughs> that's like
2: slightly So their thing plausible. is that the
0: calendar towards the front has had states that favor Hillary Clinton, southern states, et cetera. And they're saying now a lot of the states that you hit next are going to be states that they know they'll do well in. And to a certain extent, that is true. But a lot of those states are smaller states, and Hillary Clinton will still pick up delegates in those states because it's all like proportional. And so they're thinking that they can catch up there and then really catch up in New York
4: and California. But let's be clear. Bernie Sanders had a very... You know, narrow but possible path if he split on uh, March 15th with Hillary Clinton. Had he won Missouri, had he won Illinois, had he split with her in Ohio, come fairly close, and they thought all along that they would lose North Carolina and Florida pretty big. But their thinking was split the day, maybe lose by a few delegates. And they could have held serve and they would have wound up with 53, 54 percent of the remaining delegates that they needed. And that, yes, that would mean that they would need big wins, but not overwhelmingly huge wins in a lot of places. And I will tell you in this spreadsheet that I was, you know, clicking through trying to see if that would actually work. They had a case to be made. Okay, over the next six weeks, show me a state where Hillary Clinton is favored, maybe New York. And that's it. Now, had they been able to split and have the kind of momentum going into this next favorable swing of states, that was foreseeable. It was narrow, but it was foreseeable. And, yes, they would have still been behind with the superdelegates, but their thinking was you win the pledge majority, the, superdelegate the superdelegates search. come over to your See, side. It's not even clear that that would be the case, but they would certainly have an argument and a plausible path. But
0: here's the thing. In the phone call that they had, they're basically saying, oh, you know, we'll win these states – But it's not just about winning. Like right now, mathematically, Sanders would need to win 58 percent of all the remaining delegates to take it. That's pretty hard.
4: It's very hard. So it's much more difficult to win 58 percent of remaining delegates than it is 53 percent. Exactly. Now,
1: especially when you're not ahead.
4: Right. And that's why when you have a conference call like that, which was, by the way, very reminiscent of a lot of. Hillary Clinton conference calls that I was on in 2008 trying to talk about how they could win and that there was a path to beat Barack Obama when they were behind in the math count. Now, I think the point that Ted Devine and Jeff Weaver are making is that maybe the football analogy is not the best one, but the idea that only about half of the delegates have been allocated to this point and, hey, you never know what can happen later. This would have been a much more believable spin
3: if- Had they won Ohio.
4: Or no, had they split- You know, had they won Illinois, had they won Missouri, then you could see more of a mathematical path.
1: Just to go back to the football analogy for a second. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. At this point in the football game, I would be having my second beer and some wings, and I just think that... Maybe
4: this might be third beer time.
1: Maybe it's maybe it's time for a third
0: beer. Yeah. Well, if this were actually halftime, I'd be like, uh, Bernie, Hillary, where's Beyonce? Where's Beyonce, I'm go, where's
4: Beyonce? halftime show. <laughs> yeah.
0: um, um, Rolling Stones, yeah. Why not?
4: Oh, Rolling Stones, Start that was a really bad. Start Me Up show. is always the but same, but that was a bad halftime show. Okay, that maybe you sound like Rolling Stones, Michael Jackson, and I have half-time lots of reasons, <laughs> but
0: three. Uh, no, Prince, Purple Rain, halftime show because mm. he was singing and there were purple lights and it started raining and the rain was purple anyway. I don't know how we got there.
1: The commercials are so much better in football than politics, though.
0: That's true. Oh, yeah. Touché. All right. So in the midst of all of this, there also was this New York Times article that came out this week. Comments from Obama behind closed doors to donors, basically saying that it's time to unite behind Clinton. Who can can talk to this for me?
4: So apparently Barack Obama went to a a fundraiser where uh, he had told some donors. and There were no quotes in the story, we should say, but they characterized what he had said as – telling them that it was time to unite behind Hillary Clinton. Um, The White House was asked about this today, and they didn't exactly deny it, but they, they characterized it a little differently, saying that it was time to eventually get behind whoever the nominee was, and that unity was important, and it was time for the Democratic nominee to be able to pivot to take on Donald Trump because of the importance of taking on Donald Trump.
1: So it's like it's almost nearly, essentially, kind of time to get behind the person that we think is going to be the nominee. But,
0: like, why
1: why does he he care? He's not running for the election. Just
0: endorse
4: somebody, right? Well, I think that there's more to it than that because he is – the president of the United States. He's the leader of the Democratic Party. He he wants whoever is going to replace him to win. And if you see the energy that Bernie Sanders' campaign has behind him, even if Barack Obama is wanting to get behind Hillary Clinton, if he were to just put his finger on the scale and say, go with Hillary Clinton, when those Sanders supporters are still feeling like they have a chance here, especially with this next six weeks, that they want to let that play out and how do you unite the party how do you get them together when if you're barack obama and you think hillary clinton's going to win anyway because of the math that we've been laying out then just stay out of it have her win and then you know try to unite the party
0: all right uh one more quick break we'll be right back with listener mail and can't let it go
3: We'd like to say a quick thank you and share a message from one of our sponsors, Stamps.com. Mailing and shipping can seem like a no-win situation. Trips to the post office are time-consuming, and leasing a postage meter is expensive. There's a better way. Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer. Sign up for Stamps.com for a special offer. A four-week trial, plus postage, and a digital scale. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone, and enter politics.
0: all right we're going to answer some of your questions tim from boston wrote this quote there seems to be a lot of close races on the democrat side and i keep hearing record turnout for the republican side but what are raw totals beyond state by state contest if we just look at the total number of votes cast per candidates so
4: far you have an answer to uh well let me quickly add this up here uh i'm not sure uh okay it's all done all right so uh (laughs) amazing how that happens." Hillary Clinton said at a debate recently that she had the most votes of anybody. Let's stop talking about Republican turnout being so high. And Is that know, true? She was right. If you went back and look, she now has 8,658,512 votes, so 8.7 million I'm gonna just Trump votes. How many does Trump have? Uh, well, Bernie Sanders on her side has 6.1 million votes. Donald Trump has 7.5 million votes, so she's got more than a million more votes than Donald Trump does so far. But- But there were four candidates or five or six or seven at one point, right?
1: And Trump is quick to point that out.
4: That's right. And Ted Cruz, uh, just to go down the list a little bit, Ted Cruz, 5.5 million. John Kasich, 2.7 million, uh, about 700,000 short of Marco Rubio, who had 3.4 million. But one thing I want to point out here that's really kind of interesting because you start going down the list of people who have votes. Martin O'Malley, the former governor of Maryland, who dropped out before any of the votes began in New Hampshire. Remember, he uh, finished that disappointing third in Iowa. Iowa, he got ninety five thousand votes. Okay, Aww. and what's interesting about that, though, is that's better than Rand Paul, Chris Christie, Mike Huckabee, Carly Fiorina, Rick Santorum, Lindsey Graham, or Jim Gilmore, or George Pataki. None of wow. those folks got that got that many uncommitted. Sixty five thousand votes for uncommitted on the Republican side, more than Rand Paul. Isn't that interesting?
0: <laughs> Did he get more than Christie too?
4: Yeah, all those guys. Wow, it's hard out there.
0: Yeah. All right, Gia emailed us this question. I've seen reference from a number of political reporters about concern that if Trump were the Republican nominee, it could hurt the prospects of Republicans running for Congress. How is it that the case, or how would it be? Uh, this is
2: something that Democrats are really uh, excited about running on, and they, they need to be excited about something because Democrats have just gotten their butts kicked the last few congressional... And Senate elections. I think generally there's been an ongoing trend that uh, Senate and House elections have become more and more nationalized. And really, it's hardly ever about the candidate themselves. And it's more about, you know, what's happening big picture. That's a big reason why Republicans did so well. And in, in 2010, with the Tea Party movement, it was really they kind of viewed it as an anti Obama backlash, anti Obamacare backlash. So the idea is that uh, Democratic campaign managers are really going to hammer Republican candidates and try to tie them to Donald Trump at every point. You know, And um, one reason they're going to do this is because just the way that things have turned out, there are a lot of Republicans in the Senate, especially who Democrats think are vulnerable because they're running for reelection in states where Democrats typically win the presidential votes there. States like Illinois, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. These are Republicans who won in 2010, that big Republican wave year. And now they have to come back and defend them their seat in a presidential year.
1: Is there a danger that that backfires, though? I mean, we've heard that Trump is, first of all, surprised a lot of people with the amount of support he's gotten. And we keep hearing that there are Democrats who are crossing over to vote for Trump.
2: I think the thinking behind these strategists is they're still feeling very optimistic that Donald Trump has done very well in a Republican primary, but that in a general election climate, it's a much more limited appeal.
4: And you don't have to look much further than what Republicans who are in charge of trying to get senators elected have said and done. The National Republican Senatorial Committee, we actually talked about on this podcast uh, some months ago, having put out a memo on how to run against Donald Trump if you're running in a swing state. This map is much more favorable to Democrats to start out with because it's a presidential year and it's in some of those Democratic leaning states. And then to have someone like Donald Trump on the ticket, Republicans and Democrats who run some of these races are nervous. But when you even ask Republicans, who would you rather have on the ticket, Donald Trump or Ted Cruz, they kind of gulp for a second and, and they, they are not quite sure. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, Zach from Minneapolis
0: wrote, Hi, gang. Why is it that the Associated Press or some other news agency decides when to call an election? Doesn't each state have an election board? Shouldn't they be the ones deciding
4: when and for whom to call an election? If that happened, it would take forever to get results. And that's kind of why a lot of the media outlets and organizations decided to try and hire a bunch of statisticians to try to make calls, to try to figure out who these people are going to be. And now everyone always asks me to say, how can they possibly call it with 0% of the, of the vote in or 5% of the vote in? How can they possibly do this? When the polls close, exit polling information comes in. They survey thousands of people with a very small margin of error. Exit polls can be wrong and mm-hmm. they try to account for that, but then they match it with the raw vote that actually does start to come in when it's a very wide lead in the exit polls, and it you start to see some of the raw vote come in and it matches with that, then they'll make a call fairly easily. And uh, I saw a lot of comments on our on our Facebook Live feed
2: actually when Sam, when you were uh, doing the Facebook Live post yeah. on Tuesday night, and a lot of people were upset with the AP calling. Ohio, Ohio for, like
0: 10% being yeah. Right,
2: calling it for Hillary Clinton. They're saying they're biased against Bernie Sanders. Why would they do this? The thing is, though, the Associated Press does not want to make a call that it has to take back later yeah. because they have no actual determining factor here. It's still the actual votes going to the actual state. And there are rare times where the AP or other outlets will have to call something and then later and on have it. to retract it. Yep. The most famous, of course, being people calling Florida for Al Gore in 2000. And that's something that sticks around with news organizations for years. So it's not like there are news organizations out there itching to call races early to kind of like make a point for one side And, or the a, and other. a
4: couple of things on that. I mean, they're not going to affect the vote. If they make a call, that winds up being wrong because they wait until the polls, all polls are closed in the state before a call is made. We should say NPR does not make calls on election nights. We wait for the Associated Press to make the call. And that's when we will say that a race has been called by the Associated Press or is projected to win. And we use that language projected to win because it is possible that the vote in the state winds up showing a different result.
1: These aren't just just journalists sitting around looking at election returns coming in. As they're I actually say, not journalists They bring at all. in pollsters and, and political scientists, right, yeah. so, to analyze the data and, and make sense of it. they
4: are people who actually know what they're talking about, as opposed to me <laughs> right. sitting here trying to figure out what it is that they do. But they have, you know, I've sat on some of these decision desks and seen what they do, and, you know, they've got complicated spreadsheets and analyses going and various models on what the situations could be. They look at past voting trends and they look at racial demographics to figure out where the votes coming in from what the exit polls have showed and what that will mean and it's amazing that they do as good a job as they do okay time for can't let it go where we all share one thing we
0: just can't stop thinking about this week politics or otherwise because i'm hosting i get to go first this time okay (laughs) don't sound so excited scott I'm sure it'll so, be
2: great. Sam, what can't you let go?
0: Well, I can't let go. I'm seeing this new thing, or maybe not that new, on Twitter where dudes in their Twitter bios will put the word feminist.
3: Sure. You mean you
0: don't? I don't. Why, let me tell why aren't you, why. you a feminist? Me, no, 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 don't, don't do that. <laughs> but let me tell you why. Like, It just seems like a total kind of fishing for compliments. Like, By doing that, these guys are... One, begging for compliments. And two, making a conversation that should be about women about them.
1: But how do you know what's in how do you know they're looking for compliments? Because
0: there's also feminists, no no, there's also a feminist of Tinder Tumblr where they collect all these Tinder profiles where men go out of their way to brag about how much they're feminist. It's the whole thing with like the friend zone phenomenon where dudes expect (laughs) things from girls because they're nice to them. I don't (laughs) like that. And, and, and that's what I kind of think this whole feminist thing is. Also, if we accept that feminism is believing that women should be treated equally to men, that's just something that you should just do. Like, I don't have in my Twitter bio taxpayer.
1: Well, sure it's just you, a thing
0: I do because I should.
1: Well, yeah, but there's not, like, a ton of controversy about whether or not it's okay to be a taxpayer. But, like, the no, mas- there, are, the there are <laughs> people
4: who have taxpayer in their, in their bio, this I bet. That's is true. Right? Yeah, but but
1: I, I, I'm just going to push back a little, Sam, because okay. I have to say, like, like, yeah, if it's just fishing for girls— you know, whatever, not so cool. But I have to say, I am thankful for male feminists. Because I'm thankful for, like, the one I'm married to who empowers me to do my thing. Does he
0: have feminists in any of his online he, bios? He doesn't. He okay, because he's a good know, man. I
1: mean, I'll take it is what I'm saying. Okay. I'll take
0: it. Yeah. Um, who's next? Dominico, what can you not let go this week?
4: Well, I can't let go uh, bringing it back to politics because apparently that's all I think about uh, aside from the fact that March Madness is going on and no one's letting me watch that because there's a bunch of elections happening. Uh, but I can't let go this uh, Donald Trump Instagram video that he released the day after uh, this what we were calling Mega Tuesday. Let's take a listen to that. And what you see here on the screen comes up with when it comes to facing our toughest opponents and it has Putin, you know, knocking over a guy with a judo
0: move. Putin real strong. Then it
4: goes to uh, a guy with a gun who's supposed to be part of ISIS pointing it at the camera and it says, the Democrats have the perfect answer. Ellipsis. That is not a dog. That is, in fact, Hillary Clinton barking like a dog. That's a really good bark, though. Completely out of context. And then it comes back to this cut with uh, Putin laughing. And then it ends with a screen that says, we don't need to be a punchline, Donald Trump. That was a really good bark.
1: I saw that. I saw that video and it it is kind of scary. (laughs) What scares you? Uh, I mean, the ISIS
4: part. The, the ISIS judo. guy is scary. The judo yeah. guy is scary. Uh-huh.
1: It, but it's a it's an effective. You have to say it's an effective ad. I mean, it's 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 quick. It's to well, the point. Well, and I
4: think Donald Trump knows that it's controversial. I mean, he's pivoting to a general election move here to try to raise the stakes one more time. Be controversial. Make everyone talk about it. Get it on cable news. Get the controversy in about having a woman bark like a dog. Why frankly. did she bark
0: like a dog? Also, explain that.
4: Well, so this started a couple months ago where she was on the campaign trail and she had said that when she lived in Arkansas, there was a campaign ad that someone had run that featured a dog that barked every time someone told a lie that this political opponent told a lie. She said, boy, that's a really good idea. I think we should take a dog along with us on the campaign trail and listen to a Republican speech. And every time a Republican, you know, says a lie, it would do what she just did. So I had uh, two thoughts of
2: this. One was that it's some man's job in Russia to lose to Vladimir Putin in <laughs> judo. And, like,
0: sorry for you, guy in Russia, but,
2: like, that's your lot in life. But two, and I think actually, Sam, I think you might have done a story on this this summer. That, Instagram like Instagram phenomenon, yeah. Yeah, Donald Trump has revolutionized. He has brought the negative attack ad to Instagram. To Instagram.
4: Instagram used to be the nice place you post. Right. photos. Yeah, that like was my
0: story. Like, my whole story was about how, like, all of these new forms of social media end up becoming just like yeah. the old stuff. What can you not let go this week, Scott? So,
4: um,
0: on Friday, uh, this will be serious for just a moment, just a moment. Though, On
2: Friday, I was covering um, Donald Trump's rallies and how they've kind of gotten more violent. And we, we ran a story on all things considered about how they had been getting more and more tense. And then, of course, a couple hours later, uh, the incident in Chicago happened where uh, Donald Trump had to cancel his, uh, his rally because of violence beforehand. Some say
0: you didn't have to but he did. He decided yes. to cancel. Yes. yes.
2: Um, so when I was on the campaign trail in Ohio this weekend, you know, the idea of, of Trump and violence at his rallies and what role Donald Trump plays in all of this was really on my mind. And I was in Columbus, Ohio at a Democratic fundraiser that Hillary Clinton and uh, Bernie Sanders and Sam Sanders I was, was there at. for a little bit. Yeah. We ran into each other in Columbus for about 4 minutes or Pretty so. Pretty much. But before I saw you, I I found someone and I thought this is a person who really probably has really good thoughts on Donald Trump and his role. And I asked this man, and he gave me this thoughtful answer. Well, of course he's partly responsible. You know, everyone in the end is responsible for their own behavior. But clearly, you've got to know that if you're gonna stand in front of a crowd that is already hyped up and saying, I would punch him in the face, get him out of there. We used to know how to handle people like this. Well, let's, even if it isn't a direct beat him up although it's pretty close to it, At least the code language is to stir up the crowd. Thoughtful. And this is a man.
1: Is this an Ohioan?
2: It is an Ohioan who knows a little bit something about brawls and fights because that was one, Jerry Springer. Oh my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, nicely done. (laughs) I saw that and I was like, oh my God. Jerry. That's Jerry Springer. <laughs> it was like a flashback to watching Jerry Springer, which I would watch before my mom got home. She's like, turn that off! Um, so I
1: spent an entire week on, on vacation, quote unquote, in Indiana with my great aunt, and all I did was watch Jerry Springer on TV. Cause was cause the there was security nothing security do. Remember
0: the security Steve. Steve. Oh, he had his yeah. own show for a while. Because that's
2: what I thought. And then Jerry Springer said, you know, you have to calm the crowd down. You can't play a role in inciting. And I was like, easy for you to say, Jerry Springer. You had Steve.
4: Exactly. So basically, the entire Donald Trump campaign has turned into a final thought for Jerry springer yes it was a final thought <laughs> Nice. do we okay. mention that he was a former mayor of cincinnati yes. ohio yes, democratic say, mayor
2: that is why he was at this dinner because he was once a
0: democratic politician in Ohio. wow who knew all right sarah what can you not let go this week
1: okay so you remember bridget Ferrari, we heard from earlier she said you know trump is less mature than her nine-year-old daughter well she was talking about some of the things she doesn't like about donald trump she is a cruise supporter and here's what she said all Trump has is a checkered record, you know? He- <laughs> <laughs> what is that?
4: I'm Sophie. And you're yeah. nine? Um, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't really like Trump because, you know, he's, he's basically just a whiny baby. All he says Ooh. is, wow. we're going to make that's America great again. We are going to do this and that. But really, all the... Th- the only thing that he said that is the same is that we're going to make America great again. He, doesn't, he doesn't have any reasons.
1: <laughs> so the whole time I'm talking to Bridget, her daughter is like weighing in and like doing thumbs downs. And, uh, you know, she's obviously a, a very opinionated child.
2: But that was like a legit critique of Donald Trump. He does not back up a lot of what he says with, with specific details. So I don't know. Good she's, point, Sophie.
1: She's paying attention. Good for kids engaged in politics. But, you know, she has another entire lifetime to go before she can vote. (laughs) All
0: right, that's all the time we have this week. If you like the show, please rate it on iTunes. That helps other folks find us. Thank you for doing that if you already have. Also, find us on Twitter. Send us your questions there or by email. Our address is nprpolitics at npr.org. Thank you for writing us. We do read everything. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Scott Detrow. I cover tech and the campaign.
1: I'm Sarah McCammon, campaign reporter.
0: And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. And thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast.